Hello, Little G Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we did something a little different. Uh, Chris Carsons gave Dennis and I a quiz on Sacrosanctum Concilium. And uh, needless to say, I did not do that well or as well as maybe I should have, but I definitely learned something. So without further ado, episode 15 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. We are already ready already. Well, I am eager to find out what I do not know. And I am a little, you know, apprehensive to find out what I don't know. But Chris, you have a little quiz, I guess, that you give some of your students about the document Sacrosanctum Concilium that came out. Right. And this comes from, I mean, there's a number of liturgical questions that come to to me in the office to to priests uh, all the time. And, uh, you know, all of the answers are, are, we can look them up in the documents, but they're all based on the principles of the Second Vatican Council's Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, which in itself wasn't a new invention. It's, uh, we would read it in the proper hermeneutic and context. But to know this document is to know why the church teaches what she does about the liturgy. John Paul called the, uh, the documents of the Second Vatican Council, the, uh, he likened them to a compass by which the church, you know, this, uh, this bark, this ark, uh, would take its uh, direction and its bearing into the third Christian millennium. And it would have a true north, a capital T, true north, yeah. or, or liturgical north. A big T, uh, <laughs> north. That's right. So, wait, what? I don't know what that <laughs> has to do with anything. But com- I'm stu- you're I'm talking student. about a compass, true north. True north, right. True north the north is different start. than magnetic north or polar north. Oh, see, uh, there's ignorance number one on display for me. <laughs> so how do you read a compass? And, and in this case, how do you read the Constitution on the sacred liturgy so that you can take your liturgical bearings uh, moving forward? And I think that's interesting in the context of the discussion between the spirit of Vatican II and the texts of Vatican II, because the spirit of Vatican II often doesn't correspond to what the texts actually say, and only the texts are authoritative. Yeah, or rather the spirit should correspond, should be found in and grown out of uh, what the texts say. And so in some presentations or classes, we start with this uh, little quiz that helps to bring forward the, uh, the points uh, from the Second Vatican Council. So I thought maybe we would just talk about this quiz today right. and see how, let's, see how let's the Let's take the quiz. Do. Are you smarter than a liturgist? All right. I'm, I'm nervous already. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have 10 questions here, and I'll ask both of you what you uh, think the answer is, and then we'll, uh, we'll look back at the document and see what it says. So the first one is this. According to Sacrosanctum Concilium, what is the relationship between liturgy and economics? It does exist, is my answer. What's the, what does? There a is relationship? a relationship. Okay, what is it? And you mean like actual financial matters, economics, or the oikonomos? You're getting somewhere. We were talking about the home, right? Well, the, say more. The ordering of the home according to God's plan and the 
temple and everything in the Dr. right place. Dr. McNamara, you're getting to it. This is great. Oh, at least I'm not failing yet. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is the key to answering this one. The true meaning of economics is not necessarily financial or uh, how the Dow finished today or you know, trade or anything like that. The true meaning of economics is this word oikos, which means house. And so the oikonomia is the management of a household. And I don't know, Dennis, if at least when I was in high school, we even had a class called home economics. And that's the truest sense of uh, the term economics is the management of a household. And so the relationship between liturgy and economics is about how God manages his household uh, throughout creation. Right. There's that term economy of salvation. It sounds like buy your way into heaven. But no, it's how does God, <laughs> how does God manage the plan? Hey, buyer of, beware, right? Plan of salvation. <laughs> that's right. First, how did he manage uh, creation, the house of Israel? Now he manages the church back to himself. And the key is, is that the, the liturgy's relationship to this is that the economy of salvation is the context within which we understand the liturgy and celebrate the liturgy. So the economy of salvation begins with God's creation of all things, and it begins with the book of Genesis, uh, the history of the chosen people, the coming of Christ, and now this final age of the church. This is the context uh, to understand the liturgy and the sacraments, and in fact, uh, if you know the Summa at all, that's kind of written along the same lines of the economy of salvation. In the catechism, it always asks the question, what is the place of baptism in the economy of salvation, confirmation in the economy of salvation? And so to understand the liturgy is to understand it in its larger context of how God creates and manages the household back to himself. In a certain way, the, the, uh, we talked about the, the ark, which is the church. The liturgy is kind of the... the the powerhouse, the energy that propels this, uh, the church back to our heavenly homeland. It's the, the source of energy in the economy of salvation. Okay, so if you're keeping score at home, it looks like I have zero points, and Dennis has a half to three-quarters of a point. I think I that's think. right. We need a bell I can ring or something. Yeah, right. get it right. You have a bell in your office. You should have brought it. Well, please pre- press pause. I'll go get it. All right. All right, so Dennis went to his office to get a bell because we we feel like that that's going to be really awesome for this little quiz that Chris has. So, Chris, we are now to our second question in the second quiz. Second question and of our uh, sacrosanctum quiz. I'm still nervous about this, but okay. go ahead. We'll see how you do on this one. All right. Question number two. The primary actor in a liturgical celebration is, this is multiple choice, A, yes. priest, <laughs> B, deacon, C, parish liturgist. Absolutely. There's going to be an all, all of the above, isn't it? D, assembly. <laughs> e, other. E, other. Is that your final answer, Jesse? Good would, answer. Yeah, That's the say, right yeah, answer. Yeah, I would say That's other. The, right answer. the primary actor in a liturgical celebration is... The Lord Jesus Christ the ministering Jesus in the Christ. true Holy of Holies at the right hand Sacrosanctum Concilium puts it this way in number seven. Christ is always present in his church, especially in her liturgical celebrations. He is present in the sacrifice of the Mass, not only in the person of the minister, but especially under the Eucharistic species. He's present in the sacraments, in his word, when the church prays and sings. Rightly then, the liturgy is considered an, as an exercise of the priestly office of Jesus Christ. So, correct. Uh, Jesus is the prime minister, the principal actor, the main worker in the liturgy. 
In fact, when the Catechism asks this question, who celebrates the liturgy? The first answer to this is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The second answer is the angels and saints in heaven. And the third part of the answer, you know, it hasn't even mentioned any of us yet, is uh, those participants of the earthly liturgy. Hmm. Right, which means we really do something, but we do it as members of the mystical body. So that priest is acting as the head, the people are acting as the members. All Still right, so, doing something, but it's the action of Jesus Christ sacramentalized. All right, so we, so we got that one right. I got it right because I waited for Dennis to answer first. So number three. Number three. True or, this is a true or false. Oh, great. 50-50 chance, Jesse. True or false. The liturgy is symbolic. False. True. True. Dang it. Very true. Very true. Uh, this is Sacrosanctum Concilium number seven. In the liturgy, the sanctification of the man is signified, the root of the word signified is sign, is signified by signs perceptible to the senses and is affected in a way which corresponds with each, with, with each of these signs. This is called the sacramental principle, that the work that the prime minister does, Jesus Christ, has made available and present to us through outward signs. Now, the word uh, symbol... Uh, should not be one that scares us. Although sometimes we, we use the word uh, incorrectly. We say, oh, well, that was just symbolic, in which case we mean that it's really empty of any content. That's, what, that's why I said false. Yeah, yeah. Right. You, you shouldn't think of symbol that way because symbols are your friends, Jesse. The etymology of the word symbol is uh, 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 sim means uh, together, like symmetrical or sympathetic. And, and bowl means to throw. <laughs> it does mean yeah, to throw. Yeah, we talked about that, at the, like I think the first or second podcast. So I'm learning, I'm learning. Right. So uh, do you remember we talked about uh, to throw apart means diabale. Mm-hmm. So balain means to throw or to hurl, and it's the root of our English word ballistics. So when we use uh, the word signs or symbols or sacraments, what we mean is, is in the outward uh, sign or symbol is an inward content. So think for a moment at the moment of consecration. Wherever you sit in your parish church, the priest is elevating the host. And you have before your eyes and your ears and all of your senses a whole tapestry of signs and symbols and sacramental expressions. So the Eucharistic bread symbolizes... Jesus. The priest symbolizes... Wait, wait, wait. Are you saying Eucharist is a, merely a symbol, Chris? No, it's a, well, a sacrament, the definition of a sacrament is an outward sign. Okay? It signifies Jesus Christ fully, substantially would say, body, blood, soul, and divinity. So we use the word symbol like most people use the word sacrament, right? There's a real presence, a real reality coming Absolutely, through. entirely. And in fact, if the symbol or the sign, the outward expression goes away, what happens to the inward reality? Poof. It goes it's away gone. too. Yeah, right. so it's associated with this outward expression. But the priest signifies what? Christ. The altar uh, signifies whom? Christ. Christ. The white cloth on the altar. The Holy Spirit. No, Christ. The candles. Christ. The, the tabernacle. Christ. The Christ. ambry. Jesus. The crucifix. Jesus. The art and the architecture. Everything is uh, uh, bringing Jesus uh, to us. So. You get some extra credit points for that one, Jesse. All right. So in the truest, fullest sense, the liturgy is symbolic. Sacraments are types of signs and symbols that make Jesus present to us. All right. So number four. Number four. This is a fill in the blank. In the restoration and promotion of the liturgy, blank is the aim to be considered before all else. Oh, we know this one. Do we, Jesse? Yeah, we, we, Dennis and I were just talking about this earlier. So what, what, were we, what did we say, Dennis? Beige paint? No. That, no. Uh, <laughs> Ministry of Donuts? No. No. 
Active participation. Active participation. The full quote at number 14 is, in the restoration and promotion of the sacred liturgy, this full and active participation by all the people is the aim to be considered before all else. What do you know about active participation, Dennis? Well, participation means a lot of things, but primarily we're talking about the action of Christ at the right hand of God, who is pleading and bringing the people of God to him for restoration. And this happens in this dialogue of love that's text-based and sacramentalized by the words of the Mass. And our job is to do what Jesus is doing, connect our minds and heart and bodies to join into that uh, restorative prayer. And like we talked about last week, it's not an internal, external thing. It is. It goes well beyond that. Well, it's both of those. Maybe think of the last well, yeah, question. Well, it's not, yeah, is, it's, the, is the liturgy a symbolic? Yeah, it's symbolic. It's, it's made up of signs and symbols and sacraments. And by engaging in these things, by standing, sitting, kneeling, singing, listening, uh, all of these uh, actions and gestures and postures and words and music and uh, times and places, this is the medium through which we engage, we actively participate in the saving work of Christ. And sometimes people you know, fall on one side or the other. They, okay, if the ritual is done, if I stand, sit, saying whatever, I've done my duty. Or you can say, well, I just want to feel like I had some kind of intense communion with God. I don't really care about what the rubrics say. Both of those are inadequate. You should have this feeling that generates this desire of your will to be joined to Christ, but it's the external things that help uh, reinforce that. And so the body and mind, heart, soul, all together because that's who we are, people with all those characteristics. All right, so number five. You're keeping track of the points? Yeah, You're I'm still winning. batting a thousand? I'm definitely winning. Excellent. Number five, according to the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, if you wish to see the church in her most visible, clear, and authentic self, where would you look? The liturgy, the Mass. Okay, can you be more, more specific? A pontifical High Mass with the bishop. That's exactly right. Um, Good job, Dennis. I didn't even, I just guessed that one. So this is a principle of ecclesiology. So this is at number uh, 41, but also at number two. The Constitution says, All should hold in great esteem the liturgical life of the diocese centered around the bishop, especially in his cathedral church. They must be convinced that the preeminent manifestation of the church consists in the full active participation of all God's holy people in these liturgical celebrations, especially in the same Eucharist, in a single prayer at one altar at which there presides the bishop surrounded by his college of priests and by his ministers. So, yeah, the Episcopal celebration of the Mass at the cathedral is the most visible expression of the church on uh, this earth. The church most clearly looks like herself. And I guess I called it a high Mass. That would be uh, older Older terminology, you would call it a solemn mass. It's still called yeah. the pontifical mass. Sure, the book's sure. called the pontifical, mm-hmm. right? That the bishop uses. Yeah, but it has all of the the, the it's the liturgy celebrated in its uh, fullest uh, solemnity. The church, through these uh, external sacramental signs and music and all of the rest, help the church to look like uh, what it is. In fact, um, you know, there's a, we've talked about typologies before. Uh, this uh, celebration of the Episcopal Mass is prefigured in the Old Covenant. Think about Moses surrounded by the 70s, surrounded by the, the 12 tribes, surrounded by all of the people. That is a prefigurement of what we celebrate now with the bishop at Mass. But this in itself anticipates what we would see in heaven where we see the Lamb on the altar surrounded by archangels and saints and prophets and virgins and martyrs and all of the rest. And so when you celebrate that mass, you participate in that mass with the bishop, you're having a foretaste of that heavenly liturgy too. All right. So that brings us to number six. Number six. All right. The question for number six is, the Constitution puts the following norm, quote, 
No other person, even if he be a priest, may add, remove, or change anything in the liturgy on his own authority, end quote, near A, the beginning of the document, B, the middle of the document, or C, at the end of the text. Where does this show we said up? Are, are you saying where, where it is in Sacrosanctum Concilium or, or in the Mass? No, no. It's a, this is an excerpt from Sacrosanctum Concilium that no one, not even a priest, can add, remove, or change anything. Where do you think this shows I, I would, up? The I beginning, would, the middle, or the end? I would say beginning. Isn't it right at the very first sentence, first paragraph? It's not in the first paragraph, but it's the very first of the norms for the reform and restoration. So all of let's, these Let's norms. get a ding on that one. Yeah, I don't know, neither of us yeah, got close enough. I'll give a half a ding. Our answer was the beginning. Okay. Right? It's in, so the, there, are, there are 130 articles or paragraphs in Sacrosanctum Concilium. This is in paragraph number 22, that no other person, even a priest, may add, remove, or change anything on the liturgy on his own authority. And the reason that this is there is that one of the first principles, this, Dennis, is in the very first paragraph of Sacrosanctum Concilium. Right? What is, first of all, what does Sacrosanctum Concilium mean? It's sacred council this sacred council and so the first paragraph begins this sacred council sacrosanctum concilium has four aims in view and these aims are first to add vigor to the christian life second to adapt in those areas that can be adapted to the modern or the current age uh, the third one is to promote union and so union this is an expression of the unity of the roman rite okay? that's why things are not uh, easily adaptable because the celebration of the liturgy according to the mind of the council, is meant to express unity and foster unity. And this is really the principle of, of the Western church, too. If we think about uh, there, there in the East, there are very many different uh, sui juris or self-governing churches. Coptic Catholic Church, uh, the, the Maronite Church, there are 22 of these. But in the West, there's only one. So if coming out of Roman culture, there's a great emphasis on unity, and this carries over into our Roman rite. Uh, in the Western culture, this maybe doesn't sit too easily because we, we, we emphasize uh, uh, individualism, individual responsibility, individual choice, but the Western church uh, uh, desires unity. And so that's why the church desires that uh, uh, nothing can be add, removed, or changed to express and foster this unity. Except where it's permitted to. Make right. op optional changes, right? Yeah, and there are the, the rubrics of the liturgical books will say the priest or the deacon, in his, in his own words, can, can, can use them. All right, so I think we have, uh, this is number seven, I think we have, you have ten total, right? Ten total. All right, so number seven. Which city does the Constitution recognize as having the model liturgy? I would say the Vatican. Okay. Dennis? I would say the heavenly Jerusalem. Oh, man. Dennis gets it again. Come on. All right. And so if the last principle was really an expression of unity, this principle expresses what we would call eschatology. Uh, it says I really in, fell into the trap there, I think. <laughs> it says in number eight, in the earthly liturgy, we take part in a foretaste of that heavenly liturgy, which is celebrated in the holy city of Jerusalem toward which we journey as pilgrims, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, a minister of the holies and of the true tabernacle. So the liturgy, while it's rooted in history and the person and work of Christ and contextualized by the history of the chosen people, it doesn't simply look to the past, it looks at the same time towards the future. 
Sometimes, uh, maybe this came up in a former podcast, maybe you've seen the bumper sticker, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. I really don't like that you bumper know. sticker. What, what, would you, what would your bumper sticker say, Dennis? It'd say, my boss is the uh, second person of the Trinity reigning in glory on the throne, surrounded by angels and saints who shares his own divine life with us through symbolic mediation, allows us to have re-access, uh, new access to God the Father. And then That's a lot more than it, a carpenter. Underneath that, it would say, if you can read this, you're too close. <laughs> That's right. For 33 <laughs> years, he looked like a carpenter, but he kept all of this uh, greatness. Right. And this is the eschatological principle that the liturgy is this foretaste of heaven. And that's why the things we do in the liturgy, we talk heavenly, we sing heavenly songs, we, we gather in a heavenly place. Uh, the priest wears heavenly vestments because while we're rooted in the past, that past is taken up into the uh, eternal, and that's where we're, we're striving. I remember when they were talking about the translation of the third edition of the Missal, there was a lot of discussion around the word colleagues. Should it be chalice or cup translated? And uh, there was an argument that Jesus did not use a chalice at the Last Supper. He just used a cup. But that was to uh, diminish the eschatological dimension so that whatever Jesus actually used historically, what we're using now is a fulfillment of that cup as an anticipation of the heavenly chalice. Nicely said. Thank you. That's, uh, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. So uh, we are going to go to number eight now. Number eight. All right. True or false? Liturgical art and architecture are to be characterized by a noble simplicity. True. Absolutely wrong. Oh, man. No, I'm no, so bad no. at this. False, false, false. All right. What's the right answer, Dennis? Noble beauty. They should That's have right. a noble beauty. This is, this nobilis pulchritudinem. This is at number 124. Ordinaries, are, uh, by the encouragement and favor they show to art, which is truly sacred, should strive after noble beauty rather than mere sumptuous display. Now, what, uh, what we get confused with this is when they talk about the rites. Earlier in the document, it says that the right should be distinguished by a noble simplicity. That's what I was getting confused uh, at. You are, heard not that the first, you are not the first person to have confused that. Partly uh, because the general instruction on the Roman Missal says art and architecture should have a noble simplicity, even though that's not what Vatican II, the document That's exactly probably what I was thinking yep. when I was reading that document last night. So, But even, you know, we, we do a disservice to the, to the term uh, noble simplicity uh, if we don't understand, the, the, the Latin gives us some insight too. Uh, the word is, uh, uh, should be uh, characterized, or the word they use is fulgeant, fulgeant. The Latin word for a flash of lightning is fulgor. And the word refulgent, which we would say in English, you're bright, you're shiny, you're beautiful. And so the right should radiate and should communicate like a flash of lightning. The Mass or any of the liturgies should be like a, uh, uh, ascending to the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus becomes dazzling white. He becomes refulgent. The rites should communicate the beauty of Christ like a flash of lightning and all their radiant beauty. And I happen to know a lot about these words, nobilis pulchritudinem, just because I spend a lot of time thinking about it. But beauty, theologically considered, is when something reveals what it is at this very level of its nature. So it reveals its ontological reality. So for a thing to be beautiful, it means that it reveals the nature of the liturgy itself. And that would include angels, saints, glory, trinity, eschatology, cosmology, all the created um, matter at the end of time as they're restored. So a beauty is not simply a bunch of fussy stuff that you throw around because you uh, like to show how rich you are. It's to let the thing be it, what it is and be revealed, which is why it has to have simplicity. Because if it has things that don't belong to it, then it will obscure what it actually is. It will be less beautiful. 
All right, so I'm really failing this quiz here, but we'll, we'll keep going on. Number nine. There's no bonus questions either, Jesse. Oh, man. So you better, you better uh, buckle down. I'm not smart enough two. to even take your class. <laughs> All right, number nine. Which best describes the Constitution's teaching on the use of Latin in the liturgy? Latin is to be A, kept in its entirety, B, abandoned entirely, or C, used along with the vernacular language. Man, I, I want to say C. Then you should. Yes. That's right. Hey, good job, Jesse. Yeah, this is at number 36. Particular law remaining in force, the use of Latin, the Latin language is to be preserved in the Latin rites. But since the use of the mother tongue, whether in the mass or the sacraments or any other part of the liturgy, may be of great advantage to the people, the limits of its employment are to be extended. So both Latin and the mother tongue should have some place in the celebration of the liturgy. And this may be uh, just another expression of that principle we talked about before of unity. So the use of the Latin uh, helps to symbolize the unity of the Roman church, of the Latin church. You know, even when we do translations, though, into the mother tongue, this has come out of uh, um, the document Liturgiam Authenticam, all of the translations are to be based upon the Latin language. So even if you're using a, a vernacular language, uh, their point of departure is all a united common place, which is the Latin text. So sure enough, uh, after the council, bishops started to introduce uh, the vernacular, and they found it to be very uh, helpful. Indeed, it is. Uh, I, I find it so. My children, uh, others find it so, to be able to, insofar as possible, comprehend what is being said. Uh, we st it still needs to be uh, uh, understood and unpacked. And very quickly, almost the entire liturgy became to be, came to be celebrated in the vernacular. But the Latin, at least according to the mind of the church and the constitution on the sacred liturgy, should still have some a presence in the celebration of the liturgy. All right, so we are the last one now. We're at the last one. Who is the only person whose name appears in the Constitution besides Jesus? Whose is the only name to appear in the Constitution besides Jesus? You mean a, a proper name? A right? proper name. I would say St. Paul. Uh, Virgin Mary? No, not possibly. But I'm thinking of someone else. Giuseppe Sarto. Oh, yeah, Giuseppe. Oh, Pius the good, 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 X. Good friend of mine. Pius X. So this is in the section on uh, uh, music and the liturgy. It says, Holy Scripture has bestowed praise upon sacred song, and the same may be said of the fathers of the church and the Roman pontiffs who in recent times, led by St. Pius X, have explained more precisely the ministerial function of music in the service of the Lord. So Pope St. Pius X is very important for the 20th century liturgical movement, uh, helped to popularize uh, the term and the concept, properly understood, of active participation, uh, which we've talked about in another podcast. Is really the, the pinnacle of that is offering oneself along with Jesus to God the Father and then receiving from the altar uh, Holy Communion. But in this uh, context here in the uh, Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, it's with sacred music. So in his document, do you know it by now? Tralesitudini, uh, right? God bless you. Uh, he uses the term uh, uh, or, or promotes the people's active participation in liturgical song. And by so, singing chant. By singing chant. Yeah, and so Pius X, very important, and he gets uh, a mention, a shout-out in the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. 
You know what's interesting about all of these questions, whether we had the answers or not, is that they're we're still living in a post-conciliar era. I mean, it's 50 years ago, which is a long time. You think of 50 years, we'd figure out what the texts actually say. But some before he became Pope, Cardinal Ratzinger gave a very interesting talk to the Roman Curia, and he mentioned this hermeneutic of reform versus the hermeneutic of discontinuity, which are terms people uh, use a bit still, uh, saying that there are two ways to understand a council. One is that basically things stay the same, but there's a reform. Certain things need to be adapted in a small way. And a hermeneutic of discontinuity or rupture means that was then, this is now, everything's over, everything's done. Using terms like, well, that's so pre-Vatican II. Well, how can that which was true, good, and beautiful before 1960 not be true, good, and beautiful after 1960 just because the council had some sort of um, updating that they wanted to do? So he says the hermeneutic of reform is the real way to do this, and it requires going back to the texts. And he distinguishes between the spirit of Vatican II and then the actual text of Vatican II. It can sound a little... What is, this, what is the difference between the two? I, I've heard spirit, the spirit of Vatican II. What is that? Well, he says that the spirit of Vatican II is kind of the wish list of things that people wished Vatican II had said. And he says it comes from a misunderstanding of what a council is. That basically, if you treat a council like um, the U.S. Congress getting together and battling through some legislation, they get some kind of compromise, nobody gets what they wanted. So you argue with other conservative uh, folks at Vatican II, and they're more progressive or liberal types of Vatican II, and they duked it out, and not everybody got what they wanted. You know, this thing about Latin language seemed to be what the um, conservatives wanted, and some other things wanted what the liberals wanted. And that basically... The logic is if the pesky conservatives had not kept the liberals from getting what they wanted, then the real truth of the council would have come forward. Now, he said that's to misunderstand what a council is, because a council is not a battle of political uh, ideologies. I was just going to say, I mean, those are dangerous terminologies to use in the church, progressive, like liberal, conservative. Right. In fact, Cardinal George always used to say that that came from the French Revolution, liberals and, uh, and conservatives, and that a council is the coming together of bishops, and it's guided by the Holy Spirit. And so the texts that are produced, the texts have a guarantee of being without error, not the thoughts or the wishes of every word that was spoken from the floor. So that to, to say, I wish Vatican II had said this, and then operate that way, is not really to understand how you interpret a council. What you have to do is say, what do the texts actually say? And so this quiz that Chris put together really is a, how spirit of Vatican II are you versus how much do you know the texts themselves? Oh, so what am I? <laughs> Uh-oh. I don't answer that. I, it might give me uh, nightmares. But all right, Chris, thank you very much for that quiz. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, I think I'm smarter now, well, but you'll have to give it to me again next year. Well, we'll invite you back next All week right. anyway, Jesse. That's one out of ten isn't bad, Jesse. No, no, no. One out of ten is not bad. I'm one out of eight kids, so, I mean, that's not bad either. All right. I think it's time for an email question. Mail call. Mail call. Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, so the question this week comes from Alex. Alex uh, heard our podcast on music, and he had a question about instruments. We were talking about um, the, um, the unaccompanied voice being the most important um, 
What, what was that, Chris? I think the unaccompanied human voice is the most privileged liturgical instrument uh, in the liturgy, is how the U.S. bishops put it. Okay, and then we also talked about organs being very similar to the, the human vocal cord. So Alex says, what about places and cultures where it isn't feasible to have an organ? I've heard arguments that the guitar is culturally acceptable, is a cultural culturally acceptable instrument, but what about cultures that are very poor and it's the best they can do? Should they not have instruments at all? Well, I guess we could say that, first of all, it is not necessary to have instruments and that the instruments is uh, the instruments are to assist the voice to do its job uh, and in the end is to glorify God and sanctify the people. And so this is, this is like liturgical principle 101 is everything liturgical glorifies God and makes uh, saints out of us, sanctifies the whole world. So does the guitar do this? Does it lift our minds to God? Does it help to sanctify people? Does it help us to sing? Right. Vatican II specifically realizes that the church is growing in places like Africa and a lot of places that don't have a tradition with organ, or even in a place like China, which has these stringed instruments that are uh, exemplifying their native genius. That's the phrase it actually uses. So it says they can be admitted for divine worship with the knowledge and the permission of the local you know, or, uh, ordinary, so the bishops, but only on one condition. This is the actual text of uh, Vatican II. On the condition that the instruments are suitable for sacred use or can be made so, and that they accord with the dignity of the temple and truly contribute to the edification of the faithful. So just saying, oh, well, we have this new thing. Let's do it because it'll be hip and nobody's ever heard this before. That's not really a liturgical reason. So in this case, if you can't afford an organ, well, you do the best you can. What can you afford? And if your local native genius provides um, a musical instrument that supports the singing of the people, that is adaptable to the native um, genius and the glory of the liturgy, then you can use it. And of course, like you said, instruments are not required uh, for the liturgy anyway. So... All right, uh, if you have any questions for the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you, and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.